Hi, welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I'm your host, Vegan Tyler. And I am your co-host, Dax. Each episode, we talk about a piece of video game history. It could be a character, it could be a concept, it could be an important part of video game culture, and I research it and explain the story to my friend, Dax. Yes, and I try to figure out what's going on while Tyler, 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 tries to explain (laughs) to me the details of this video game history. Right. So how have you been, Dax? How, How are things since our last episode? I've been good. Uh, a bit stressed out with school and stuff like that. And I've been compensating by playing enormous amounts of Dark Souls 3 and trying to make myself feel better by feeling bad about dying a lot in Dark Souls. Well, dying a lot in Dark Souls seems to be the shtick of Dark Souls. Absolutely. Have you been playing anything cool recently? Well, you got me into playing Dark Souls 1, and boy, that has been fun. What a good game. I, I do love it, yeah. I don't think it's a game that's for everyone. For sure. No, it's... absolutely not. But I do. Th- I, I did notice that people that try it out and that I have been critical about it often like it after getting into it for a while. So it, I think from the outside, it looks like not as enjoyable as it actually is. Yeah, I didn't think that I would like it. And I really have. Yeah. I played it mostly just because everyone was peer pressuring me to do so. And now yes, I'm really enjoying it. So. <laughs> okay, well, uh, are you ready to get into it? I'm super happy to get into it. The year is 1982, and two students, Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin, which are names you'll hear a lot in this story, Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin are enrolled in Hebrew school. Both of them are 12 years old in 1982 and are in the same class to prepare for their bar mitzvah. So that's where they first meet. And for those of you who don't know, a bar mitzvah is like a coming of age ceremony for boys in Judaism. And so through this class, they become friends, and they realize that they both love video games. So they're like teenage friends. Um, that, did, and they only went to Hebrew school together, or did they just go to like normal school too? I think they also went to normal school because <clears throat> they start hanging out with a bunch of kids in their classes that had Apple II computers. And if you haven't seen an Apple II computer, imagine that it kind of looked like a typewriter with this like tiny screen on top of it. And then underneath the screen are these two slots for floppy drives. I think and I remember those. My dad had one of those. And these floppy disks, they're actually as big as a, um, as a how's it called, a dish. That you could they're pretty on. big. Pretty huge, yeah. Uh, but what was really interesting about Apple IIs is that they were the first real mass market computers in the industry that you could just get in your home. And so they, they have this little group of friends and they all have these Apple II computers and they're all just like talking about video games in their classes. And so Andy starts talking to, to Jason, you know, Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin are talking <clears throat> and Andy explains that he had already been programming games, his own games for two years. 
He was 12 years old and he was programming games. He was programming games and he had already been programming games for two years. So was he just a 12-year-old boy bullshitting his friends or was he actually telling the truth? No, No, he was telling the truth. And Jason Rubin had also been working on games in his spare time. And so the two of them, these two 12-year-olds, realized that they might be able to start making games together. Here's a quote from Andy. Quote, For being 12, my games were very advanced code-wise, and Jason's looked great because he had this artistic inclination. He could draw really well, but his didn't run very well, and mine didn't look very good. So really quickly, we were like, hey, we should get together. I like this. It, it seems a bit weird to tell say that about yourself, that you think you've been doing, you've that you already peaked when you were 12 years old. I'm, I'm just <laughs> saying, I don't know where this yeah. is going. I'm just saying it sounds a bit weird. It does. Well, you know, they're 12-year-olds. Yes, so. they are. So they start working on games together, and that was very unusual for the time. They had some struggles trying to make games because you have to remember that, you know, this is the early 80s, and there was very generalized, there there wasn't very much generalized technology at the time. Computers were just entering homes and just barely at that. So for them to be working on video games was highly unusual. So when they started putting together games, they didn't know where to go. So they would have to find like specialized Apple user groups or talk to individual people who might help them. And there was this magazine going around at the time that they said that they used to read called Byte, B-Y-T-E, that was like helpful, but it wasn't really for what they needed. So here's a quote from Jason Rubin. He says, quote, there would be some guy I always called the Gandalf, some guy with a long white beard who was the senior guy. He probably didn't know that much, but he answered our questions because there were no online forums. There were books, but there were very few books. Books didn't answer questions like Google does, clearly. How many books could you buy? You couldn't search for them online. I wonder if there was rumors going around. Like, Do you remember when we were kids and we were playing a game like Pokemon? And there was, because there, we, we couldn't afford magazines where there was information about what you had to do for certain things. So there was always rumors between friends that you could get Mew, for example. Right. And maybe they had their own little group where there was rumors like, I know if you use this one command, you can make a character dance in your special game that you programmed. Who knows? I mean, it was a lot harder to get a hold of information back then just Absolutely. because the internet wasn't a thing. Yeah. So their first project was to try to port the arcade game punch out i don't know if you've heard of punch out before but they wanted to it's like a boxing game yeah so they wanted to port punch out from the arcade to the pc and so what they did even though this was illegal (laughs) was they they went they tried to illegally clone the copyrighted franchise yes okay and they did this without having the code they went and took pictures of each move in the arcade game and then took those pictures back to their houses and made like remade all of the characters and all of the moves from the game like they like they they reverse engineered it and this was their project up until 1984 when one of them accidentally overwrote the floppy disk that they were using and it was totally lost oh that's so painful yeah oh no also probably lucky for not getting sued later on probably for the best yeah (laughs) Uh, they said that that wasn't the first time that they lost a game to accidentally overwriting things. So, oh yeah, okay. So saving saving your information while being in development is crucial. I, it's good that they learned that early, though. Yes, uh, data redundancy is so important. 
Yes. So. Okay, so they're 14, and they decide that they want to work on another game. And they start working on another game that they called Math Jam. So like a math jam, which was this educational game for the Apple II that would teach children math. And at the age of 14, they created and incorporated a company that they called Jam, J-A-M, which stood for Jason and Andy's Magic. So they're 14 years old. They're publishing a game they've incorporated at this point. And so what they would do with this disc, this game, is they would burn burn discs, like floppy disks, with the game, photocopy instructions on how to use it and play it, and then sell that game to schools. Oh, that's smart. So they started running into issues, though, because schools wanted them to get teachers and psychiatrists to sign off on their game and approve it for kids. And so they were basically like, uh, maybe we should give up on making educational games. One question. How old were they at that point? Like, I think we started in the 82, so we're now 84. Two years later, 14. Okay. Yep, they are 14. It's 14, and they are selling educational video games to schools? Yes. I respect that. That's amazing. So at 16, two years later, they have, by that time, developed a game called Ski Crazed. Like, you're crazy for skiing. So Mm. I won't get into the technical aspects of this, but it was really fascinating because everything that they did at that time seemed so painful. They created the art using these really terrible touchpads from the time. They had to trick computers into rendering images in ways that it wouldn't normally. They had to constantly reset their machines to do like these various tasks. It seemed like it was very grueling. But I do think that 14 is the perfect age to do gruesome work like that because the patience yes. you have at that age is amazing. So oh, sure. for now, this whole story seems like they've been starting doing this at exactly the right time in their lives. Yeah, when you have no major responsibilities other than school. And you are bored out of your mind. Oh, yeah. So they make Ski Crazed, and they sell it to a small company in Michigan called Baudville. B-A-U-D-V-I-L-L-E. Mm-hmm. And the game sold roughly 1,500 copies, and they made about $2 per copy. Wow. And so, they, right? So they take this money, and they roll that right back into making games to buy hardware and things like that. Now, here's a total side note. I liked this little bit. So they briefly discussed buying a hard drive, a five megabyte hard drive in this time in the yeah. 80s, 1986, yeah. would have cost them $24,000. That's, that's, that must have been a very brief discussion if you only had $3,000. Like, it's like, how much is it? $24,000. How much money do we have? $3,000. Well, that's the end of this discussion. Apparently, like, I read a story. It was like an anecdote, like, that maybe they knew a guy who had a hard drive and he was their age and they were like, whoa, he must be loaded. And it turns out that that guy had just stolen it. Oh, no. Oh, no. But... They say, we're going to take all this money and we're going to roll it back into making video games. Mm -hmm. So at the age of 17, they put out an adventure game called Dream Zone, which was um, it could be played on both the PC and this console at the time called the Commodore Amiga. And this game, same company that they're working with, sells 10,000 copies and they made about $15,000 on the deal. Wow. So at the age of 17... In the 80s, they have already put out multiple games, 
and they just made $15,000. I have a feeling that early success like that can't be very good for character growth. Just saying. (laughs) This entire thing makes me feel like these guys have been doing this at at exactly the right moment in their lives. And also, these guys will be the worst human beings you can imagine. But I'm I'm going to be patient. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, you don't know anything about them yet. No. So so it's their senior year, and they want to keep making games. And they decide that they're going to move away from this company, Bodville, that they've been working with. So here's a quote from Andy Gavin. Bodville wasn't much of a marketer, and they didn't have very good distribution. Dream Zone wouldn't be in every store. So Jason and I were like, eh, they're too small. We went up to Michigan, and they were kind of stoners. Definitely one of the two partners was a serious stoner. Not that we saw it, but he was just... Like, dude, mellow out. <laughs> oh, so man. so yeah. they're going to ditch this game company. So you're two 17-year-olds. You've got games you want to market. What do you do when you want your next game to be big? You just start calling up video game companies and asking them to sign you a deal. So they call up Electronic Arts. Yes, EA, like that EA. They were like the biggest video game publisher at the time. They they had put out the most games. They call up EA, biggest game publisher in the world at the time. And they are like amazingly fast-tracked and put through to like higher-ups at the company. So the company says, okay, well, we want to see your previous work, but we're pretty impressed. And they start getting into contract negotiations. And the pair asks for $15,000 more to make their next game and a 10% share of each game. EA agrees to their terms and they sign a contract with EA at 17. So they get a 10% share of any revenue that would come out of these games. For each game that was sold, if you sold it for, I I think if I read the stats correctly, if it was a $40 game, they'd make $4 on every game. That's a good deal. That is a great deal. So they start working on their next game. They get $15,000 up front. They have money from their previous ventures. It ends up costing them more than they originally anticipated and i think they had to get more money from ea it cost about forty-eight thousand dollars for their next game and they noticed that because ea is front-loading them a lot of money that ea controlled a lot of the process in ways that they didn't like uh here's my personal commentary nothing has changed about ea since then i was just going to settle apparently ea has always been the same yes exactly the same so (laughs) they wanted a serious rpg but ea wanted something funny And so they assigned them a comedy writer to make the game funnier. And it made the game weird in a way that the market wasn't really ready for or could appreciate at the time. But regardless, they launched this game. It is called Keef the Thief, K-E-E-F the Thief, in 1989. And at this time, they had been calling themselves Jam, J-A-M, but they dropped their original company name due to a trademark overlap and rebrand under the name Naughty Dog. Oh, yeah, nice. These are the guys from Naughty Dog. It sold around fifty thousand copies. One question. Yes. Did they, did they have uh, a copyright issue with the jam producer? Was that it? <laughs> no, I think I can't remember who the copyright issue was with. It had something to do with some other company that was called like J A M, and they were okay. like, "We'll just we'll just call ourselves yeah. something different." I, I just would have thought that would have been funny. <laughs> Yeah, the Welsh's the Welsh's jam company is coming after him. So yeah, take him down. So Keith the Thief, uh, it's not 
it's not what they wanted, but it sells 50,000 copies and they are ecstatic. They make a bunch of money on this. So they finish high school. <laughs> no, they hadn't finished high school yet. They finish high school and they sign on for another game with EA and they start working on a game called Rings of Power. It's amazing that they managed to finish high school. Yeah, with, they were not only finishing school, but putting out games. So however this will turn out, I will say now, before I will say later on that these guys turned into douchebags because I'm already sure of it, I'm still impressed with them. I'm still impressed. You know, um, even if they do turn out to be douchebags, which I'm not sure that they do, you know, even douchebags can do impressive things. That's so. <laughs> so anyway, it sells 50,000 copies. They start working on their next game. They sign with EA. They ask for $90,000 to make a game called Rings of Power but it ends up costing them over 150 by the time they're done. They also hit some issues because at this time they finished high school and went to college in two different states. And so instead of just cranking out games like they were, it took them three years to get it out, meeting in the summers to work on their game. So basically they were in college, they would work on things, and then they would meet up in the summers and go nonstop on this game that they had a contract with EA for, and then they would go back to college in their respective states. That's commitment. Oh, yeah. Great. So the game ends up being ported to the Genesis, because the Genesis was out at this time. Because we're we I talked think, about the Genesis before. Right? We're up to the early 90s at this point. Genesis was a huge thing already because of Sonic. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Sonic would have just come out around this time. Um, when they were when they were working on this game. And so this was their first taste of messing with consoles. They had never worked with consoles before. They had only ever worked with, with computer games. And so they sold 100,000 copies of Rings of Power in three months. And they actually completely sold out of every copy that existed. So imagine that it worked like this. Basically, companies would create a printing of however many cartridges they were going to make. So they'd say, we're going to make 100,000 cartridges of this game. And if it does well, we'll reprint it. Okay, almost like you would like books or something like that. Yes. So cartridges were pretty expensive to make. And so EA calls them up one day, and I'm, I'm really paraphrasing here, and they basically said something like, we have good news and bad news. The good news is your game is completely sold out. The bad news is we're not going to reprint it because they wanted to focus all of their focus into making a Madden game. So Madden is this football game. It's right? a sports game. Yep. Sports games were easier to sell. They were cheaper to make. And like we talked about in, in the previous episode, you could bring in famous people. It was very easy to get famous people to just come in, you know, sports stars who had brand recognition. So you could crank out sports games. They were cheaper to make and they were easier to promote. And um, sport games is also kind of what EA has been doing for a long time to just make money. It's right? true. So here's a quote. <clears throat> here's a quote from um, Andy Gavin. Quote, you'd have John Madden on a poster bear hugging some players or something. It's easy marketing and you'd get to meet these famous guys. And all the guys that, that EA hired were sports guys. You'd be in the regular programming section of the building and everyone would look like geeks. No offense, because those were our friends. But then you go over to the marketing section and everyone was larger and better dressed. They went to sports bars. They couldn't quote Star Wars. They didn't really know what to do with our weird game about dragons and magic rings. So we felt a little disenfranchised with the whole business. This was actually the only time in the history that Naughty Dog took a breather in its oh, history. I understand it. I mean, he's a bit salty, but for, for good reasons. He, he loves something and he gets it taken away by something that reminds him of bullies. Right. 
I could totally see that. And I imagine that, you know, there would be a bit of a culture clash there between what they wanted and what EA wanted to make. Yes. And it's the rise of the nerdism that's finally okay. But, and they always run into these things that have, they are holding them back. Like their time is coming. Computers are getting great. I'm get I'm being useful for being smart. And then there's these guys that are abusing these wonderful machines to just do the same stuff they've been doing all day in real life too is stupid sport. Well, I think what's really fascinating to me too, even before we continue with the story here, is that you know this is the early '90s, and you have a company like EA going, well, let's crank out a bunch of sports games because they're easier to make. Let's just, you know, we'll put out a new one each year and it'll be super, you know, it's super easy. We'll tweak the graphics a little bit. We'll slap some new football stars in there and we'll make a bunch of money. How is that any different from FIFA 2019? No, it's the same. Yeah. FIFA is just oriented towards the European market because football is a huge thing here. And uh, I have many friends that really love the FIFA games because they watch a lot of football and they like to see the players they like in the game. And ultimately, video games are a product. And and so I think it's easy to maybe demonize EA for being like, we want to make a cheap sports game that everybody will buy. But like ultimately, they're in the business of making money. So I get it. And they are serving a market that is absolutely eating it up. Right. And so I can see why these two guys might have issue with that when they're trying to make something that's not like that yes absolutely okay so they take some time off they finish college and they go in different directions ruben heads out to california and says he's gonna learn how to surf gavin starts (laughs) working at a ph yeah yeah gavin starts working on a phd at mit nice and ruben is like you know i think he said something like i'm not even sure that i ever even learned how to surf I'm not even sure that I surfed a single time because basically once he heads out to California, he gets almost immediately picked up by a special effects company that does 3D graphics and starts working on a movie called Wolf with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer that came out in 1993. I think I don't know that movie, but I do know that in that time, if you were in any way, ab- in any way able to do special effects with a computer, that that was a guarantee to make good money. Oh, yeah. Oh, you could, you could get a job very easily. So speaking of, while he's there working on this movie, he gets a call from a guy who wants him to mess around with a console called the 3DO. And if you've never heard of the 3DO, it's because it had a very short life cycle. But what was special about the 3DO is that it was a console that could run CDs. And CDs were very exciting at the time. Because, remember I just talked to you about cartridges being expensive to produce and you could only do limited runs? CDs were cheap, they could fit way more than a cartridge, and you could market them way easier. That's a huge revolution if it comes to data storage. Oh, you're exactly right. So they want to know, you know, uh, would you be interested in making games? And the two of them take this offer and they accept. And so in their next game, they found a ton of freedom because they didn't have a big company like EA breathing down their necks. And so they say, yeah, we want to make games. But remember, they weren't getting like published by the 3DO. They just said, do you want access to our hardware? Do you want to make games on the system? Like, we'll give you early access to it. And so they decide, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to self-fund our work. So Ruben moves back from California the whole way to Boston at MIT with Gavin. And they start working on a game called Way of the Warrior. They switch from making RPGs. And they say, 
they, they basically decided that they wanted to make a fighting game because it was easier to make, it was easier to render, and it was uh, they, they, could, they could get it out easier is the, is the easy way to put it. And things like Mortal Kombat were really popular at the time. And they thought, you know, we'll just we'll just jump on that bandwagon wagon. We'll make a we'll make a fighting game, too. So side note, have you ever played fighting games from that time? I have. I, I've played them much later. I played Mortal Kombat once, I think. But mm-hmm. do you know any other examples that are exactly from that time? Was Street Fighter well, later? Street Fighter was later, I yes. think. Uh, Virtua Fighter came a little bit later as well. Okay, well, we'll talk about Virtua Fighter here, Fighter here in a moment. Mm-hmm. It shows up in the story. Uh, Tekken wasn't... The original Tekken wasn't that far off either. A couple of years, I think. I've only played Tekken 3. I don't know the original Tekken, actually. I've never seen it. Oh, Tekken 3 is Tekken the best of that era, I think. Okay. But. Anyway, that's just a side story. Just curious what just curious what your um what your take on those was. So what was interesting about Mortal Kombat is that they used these like motion capture things and they put someone in front of a green screen and then they would like take basically pictures of people and then they would shrink those down into the game. I remember that. The Mortal Kombat sprites, they all look like they are actual humans. They have this weird look about them. So that's what they do with Way of the Warrior. Mm. So it cost them eighty thousand dollars. They had to bring in several other contractors to help them complete their game. They got friends to record the voices who would work for free. They set up a sheet in this tiny apartment at MIT. Like they put a sheet on their wall and moved everything. And then they would have people stand in front of the the sheet and do like moves because they couldn't afford like a chroma capture thing, right? Like these days you just buy a green screen or something and you would just use a chroma capture. They couldn't do that. And so basically there's stories of them. Their apartment was so small that they would have to stand out in the hallway and record people doing these like moves and these voices. And apparently the rumor around MIT was that they were shooting like really kinky pornos. <laughs> so yeah, what, I mean, that, that makes sense. I, I, will, I right. would assume that about my neighbor instantly. I, <laughs> either if they have a camera like that, either they are throwing out lots of these videos where you have to, that, that you're sent to these dating agents that get you a girlfriend or you do pornography. That's the only two choices. <laughs> well, I mean, imagine what it must be like for their neighbors. There's just a whole bunch of people coming in and out, grunting and stomping oh, around. Noises. Yes. Right. Right. And like they're standing out in the, they're standing out in the hallway with like a camera. Oh man. And also, also you don't want to ask, so you just assume, because, yeah. because if you ask, you will get an answer and you really don't want to know, actually. Yeah, you just don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I totally agree. We all may have had the same experience of living in tiny apartment complexes and just not being interested in why our neighbors do the noises they do. Yep, it's just fun to postulate yes. at that point. So, Okay, so by the time they're done with Way of the Warrior, they have almost no money left to their names. They had to sell a bunch of their possessions just to have money to finish the game, including, I think one of them sold like their stereo and stuff, but they had set aside $10,000 as part of their budget. And that $10,000 was to get them to purchase a booth at the consumer electronic show in 1994 to generate interest in their game. They didn't have a publisher, but they had a game. And so they needed to show it off themselves. So they go, they set up their booth, And the game ends up being really popular, and a bidding war erupts over the game. There were three people who wanted access to their game. 3DO wanted exclusive rights, 
So it was already going to be on the 3DO, but 3DO's parent company wanted to buy up the game. You're still talking okay. about Way of the Warrior, right? We are still talking about Way yes. of the Warrior. So <clears throat> this podcast isn't about Way of the Warrior, but you'll see where this is yes. going. So 3DO wants in, Universal Studios wants in, and a company called Crystal Dynamics wants in, who were also making games at the time. 3DO wanted it as an exclusive. Crystal Dynamics wanted to use their code to port in a different famous game called Samurai Showdown. And there's all these really like fun offers going back and forth. But Universal offered them something that the others didn't. They were putting together a division that would make video games and had a totally different philosophy. Here's Ruben's take on it. Quote, Universal offered us to come onto the lot to make additional games to fund additional games, to give us creative freedom, and it just sounded a lot cooler. Plus, I loved LA. It was, in the end, a better deal. For us, this was one of those big decision points. Had we gone with 3DO as an exclusive, it could have been the end of Naughty Dog. Because, move ahead in the story real quick, 3DO folds very quickly. Yeah. But It also feels like that these three deals that they got, that they, they answer themselves. Because one deal was get stuck in an exclusive deal that you never get out of. The second deal was sacrifice your code to the coding gods and get it taken apart by people that don't care about it. Or the third deal right. is get it to people that appreciate your freedom to be a good developer. And the choice is clear if you love developing. Oh, you're exactly right. I, and I think that was the smart choice. Yes. So they end up going with Universal. <clears throat> the game launches on the 3DO in 1995, Again, I don't think it was, like, I don't think 3DO owned it. I think that they just made it for the console. But the console crashed really hard, and it was discontinued a year later. So Universal sees this, like, really big potential. And so while Universal, like, owned it and published it for them on the 3DO, they're like, we want you to work with us more. So here's Ruben's take. Quote, Way of the Warrior came out. It was what it was. But Universal said to us, pick a platform, pick an IP. Pick a type of game and we'll fund it. They were so, you know, they're offering them this place to stay and work for free if they could just show them that they had good game ideas. So, like you said, what other choice do you do you have in that regard? They pack up everything they own and they drive the entire cross-country drive to California nonstop. I think when I read the story that they only stopped like a couple of times to sleep very briefly, and it was like a 40-hour almost nonstop drive. They must have been so pumped. Just yeah. let's get there. Our life is going to be the best it ever was now. We're going to make so many cool games! <laughs> I bet they, I don't know. Maybe you could turn this into a nice road movie where they did stupid things and it, it it's all about them getting there on time. I, I can see This it. car trip ends up being very important because they start talking about what kind of game they want to make. Mm. You've got 40 hours to burn nonstop with your best friend in your car who you've made like six games with since you were 12. Let's use this time. Spitball. So they start thinking about platformers. Platformers were really big at the time. Remember, like Sonic was a platformer. Yeah. So Sonic's really big at the time, things like that. Lots of classic platformers at the time. Uh, what else? Donkey Kong Country was out. Um, you know, Mario's a platformer. And they said, but they're all limited to 2D. And it's the mid-90s. And games are starting to move to 3D, so we want to work with that. So what would a 3D platformer look like to them? So they're like, okay, Sonic is, let's say it's Sonic. 
Sonic's doing loops in 2D and that looks fine, but what does it look like for the player if it's in 3D? And they joked and they said, it would just be you staring at Sonic's ass the whole time. So they say, you know, okay, maybe we want to make a Sonic's ass game. We want to make a game where you're doing this platforming in 3D. And so they say, but the front of the character is where the expressions are. So maybe you would need to show the front of the character sometimes too. What if we found ways to show the character's face? What if we had levels where you were moving backward? What if we switched it out and you had levels where you were going sideways? And so they say, okay, here's our idea. Let's just, let's make a new 3D platform game using new hardware. And if the industry's moving that way, maybe we should try and make something like that. Too. I know the game we're talking about. I've had it. Oh, do you? Yes, absolutely. Because the especially it? the description of moving into the camera sometimes and out of it sometimes and sideways, that's Crash Bandicoot. It's totally Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> good job, Docs. So they move on to a lot at Universal. And part of the deal is that they get to bring their dog and hang out. Now, I haven't mentioned the dog in this story, but like, there's this like big giant dog that was, um, I think it was Jason Rubin's dog. Mm-hmm. And this dog is like with them for like this whole journey. Uh, we'll talk about the dog in one of the fun facts at the end, but they, they, they were like, we have to be able to have our dog there. And so when people would come and interview for, to work at the company later, there were always these stories where they'd be like, these guys are like playing music and they have like a dog here and stuff like this is great. <laughs> so the dog was like a big draw for people. So they've got this dog and uh, according to some anecdotes, like they would meet all these celebrities because they're working at Universal. And there's this famous story and there's not a lot of details on it about how their dog cornered Sylvester Stallone in an elevator. And like they didn't know what to do. Oh, no. Like cornered in a way <laughs> threatening Sylvester Stallone or just like I know I had big dogs pushing me against the wall because they wanted to get their belly scratched or did they push him against the wall because they wanted to no info only that it occurred so but they get to universal right to to pedal back here a little bit they basically plug in their computers and they just start working so they hire on a couple of new people uh i don't know how to say this guy's name so i'm gonna apologize but it, it it's it seems like it's spelled like baguette right like like the bread. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm going to call him Dave Baguette. And if I'm wrong, I apologize. Uh, Dave Baguette is a friend of Andy Gavin's who was hired to join the team. They knew each other from MIT. And there's like a story about how they met at MIT. And he was like, Oh, I really want to make video games sometime. And uh, Andy Gavin was like, yeah, I published my first game when I was 14 and I had had deals with EA. <laughs> he was like, well, I guess we are at MIT. This makes sense, right? Yes. So Dave comes and starts working with them and he's one of their lead programmers. And they meet this uh, other famous guy, Taylor Kurosaki, who was there for visual effects. And this guy was working at Universal at the time on a show called Sequest. And this will come up just a little bit later. He's working on the show called Sequest and he meets them because their office is really close to his. They were similar in age. I think they're in their early to mid-20s. I think they were 24. And he's like, man, you guys have really neat tech to work with at the time. And they realize that like he wants a job. And so they're like, dude, come hang out with us. Come have a job, right? So he he starts, he moves into and he starts working with them. So they've got a small team. It does grow over time. And so they start going, okay, one of the first steps is we need to figure out what system we want to be on. So 
The 3DO was still a thing at the time, and but they had already made a game on it. Quote, it was clunky and very expensive, and it wasn't selling very well. I looked some stuff up about the 3DO. I think the base 3DO model was like $700. Not a great entry point when you had like the Genesis for like $150. Okay, or, just, or just, other... what is the comparison price of other consoles at that time? So $150 for the Genesis and $700 for a 3DO, which is a console that has not proven itself at all. At all. Exactly. Though, no, it was like, oh, it's 3D. It's so special because it was 3D. Everything okay. else was 2D at the time. But still, $700. There was another console called the that, that Atari had put out called the Jaguar. They were like, yeah, that's a joke. We're not doing it. Nintendo had a mystery machine coming out, but no one knew anything about it. This ended up being the Nintendo 64. Sega had the 32X, which plugged into the top of the Genesis that was about to hit. Um, but they weren't sure that they wanted to go with it. And the Saturn was coming out shortly thereafter. Like the Saturn was in development and they're like, we don't know. And it was kind of hard for them to like get some stuff from Sega. And so Sony is the last company that they look at and they called them the wild card. And Sony had never created a console before and no one knew anything about it. And they would turn out to create one of the most successful consoles on the market. They would, and they still do. So how do they pick? So they decide that they, they, they think that they need to be an exclusive on a console. And they narrow it down to either Sega or Sony and decide to contact both of them. And so Sony had an expedited process, which I'll talk about here in a minute, that allowed them to get the hardware a little easier than Sega did. And they, they immediately realized that the Sony hardware was really advanced for the time for what it did and that it could handle 3D. So here's Andy Gavin's stuff on it. Here's a quote. Quote, the PlayStation 1 GPU just drew triangles on a screen, but it was pretty good at it. It could draw about 120,000 polygons a second of triangles, which was phenomenal. If you were using a PC at the time, they had no 3D graphics hardware. They had like VGA boards. You'd be lucky to get a couple hundred polygons because you had to do them all in the software. But here was the PlayStation that was going to be like $199, he means, whatever it was. And it was like a complete machine with the CD drive and with the memory and everything. Console machines compared to PCs at the time, world of difference. Like we're talking Windows 3.1 and DOS. To run a game, you usually had to have a boot disk with like a custom auto exec batch and config sys and you had to open up your machine. This was not very game friendly, uh, not a very game friendly world on PCs, but PlayStation or Genesis or Super Nintendo, you just shoved in a cartridge or a CD, pushed it on and boom, it booted. They're like Sony's console from what we can see has the best specs and they're like, it's sleek, it's neat, it's made for 3D and it importantly allowed them to, it, it allowed independent developers the ability to access their development unit, like basically like a PlayStation prototype, even without having a publisher. So other companies would say, oh, you can get access to our console, but you need to show us that you're going to get published by somebody, right? Like you had to go through publishers. Sony was just like, look, if you go through all the steps and you know sign away your firstborn or whatever, we'll, we'll let you look at it even if you haven't, you don't have a publisher yet. So that was exciting to them. So they made it, um, they had a lower threshold of getting into it. And probably the idea was to get more developers 
into the PlayStation by not making it as hard for developers to get into it. Exactly. And so while they were technically working with Universal, remember Universal's bankrolling them, they weren't technically owned by Universal. They were just working for Universal. So it allowed them to get this unit to start messing with the PlayStation without a lot of bureaucratic stuff. Also, they had a thought. If Sega had Sonic, Nintendo had Mario, what does Sony have? They held out this small hope that maybe they could fill that void, which would lead to less competition. Like, okay, so let's say you go to Sega. You're immediately going to be competing with Sonic. How do you compete with Sonic? You can't. Why not just try to stake your claim somewhere else? I can see how Crash Bandicoot could have turned out to be a mascot for the PlayStation, but it never did. The um, PlayStation, I think, in the early days had a few very remarkable characters, but none of them turned into the characteristic PlayStation character. Well, we'll talk about that once this starts selling. Okay, so Jason Rubin's quote. Quote, we were crazy to think that we could fill that. We were, like I said, three or four 24 to 28-year-olds and Mark at the time. Mark was this friend of theirs. I think the guy who worked at Sony. Anyway, we were not Miyamoto. We were not Naka. We were not legends in the industry. Miyamoto is the creator of Zelda and Mario, and Naka is, is one of the creators of Sonic, yeah. We were forgotten in the industry. We had made average games. So they're like, we're going to make this mascot. We're going to make Sony's mascot, but we're nobodies. We're just working out of a back room at Universal. But for the first time in their careers, they weren't in school. They had an actual budget. They had employees. And so they wanted to make sure that they had attention to detail in their projects. It was a real job, and they could actually start realizing their vision. They start looking around at other games. Like I said, they had already talked about things like, you know, wanting to make a platformer. They said that Donkey Kong Country was a huge inspiration on their gameplay because they liked that platforming. They just wanted to do it in 3D. And they said that they wanted to make a character that was a very Looney Tunes kind of character. They want this character. It's very cartoony, like something Looney Tunes that was, quote, highly animated and fluid. And so over the course of the project, they bring in a bunch of cartoon animators who help them to come up with a design. They end up with three people on their art team for a while. They start pitching characters. So they go out, they find this book, and it's this book of weird marsupials. And so they come up with a character design that they like that they originally called Willie the Wombat because no (laughs) one had made a wombat character before. It might be because wombats spend their entire life looking like they are going to fall asleep any second. (laughs) Yes. Very exciting gameplay of a sleepy wombat named Willie. (laughs) (laughs) So, So they eventually settle on a different weird marsupial, the bandicoot, and they come up with Crash Bandicoot. I didn't know that the Bandicoot was an actual animal. I just thought it was the name of the character. Just Bandicoot, just the thing you come up with, like a weird second name. Because I don't know that animal. Is it it the Tasmanian wolf something? What is that? No, that's a different character. It's just, it's like a furry little marsupial thing. It's not very big. Ask Professor Google for all of your animal needs. It's my my biology professor. It's called um, Professor Dr. Google. Yes, Professor Dr. Google. Or as one of my professors in college used to call it, quote, the Google machine. He'd say, I don't know how you kids don't know this. You got the Google machine. (laughs) So punch into the Google machine, man. All right, so they start working on story. 
they bring on this uh one of one of their artists they had on his name was joe pearson he comes up with this backstory between crash and this evil scientist called dr neo cortex who yep he had that big head and like the crazy hair a big n on his head he does yes and they chose uh this guy chose the island locations that would come up um like that would show up in the game and so they cite basically a bunch of 80s adventure movies and like 80s cartoons as their inspirations for these things and so the basic story is that you know, Crash is a failed experiment of Dr. Neocortex, and he's this unexpected hero who is thrust in this situation. And they, I remember them saying, like, they really liked The Goonies and Indiana Jones and all these other movies at the time, and that really influenced the direction of the game. So they pony up for their five person company to get these expensive silicon graphics workstations. These were all the rage at the time. And they were what were used to make Jurassic Park. You've seen Jurassic Park, right? Okay. So when they did the 3D modeling in Jurassic Park, they used these really fancy silicon graphics workstations. Super high tech at the time. They buy them. And from the reports I read, to buy one workstation, it cost anywhere from $75,000 to $100,000. And then to get the software for the workstation, it cost another $75,000. So... Per person, if these numbers are accurate, it cost about $150,000 per workstation that they bought. That's a lot of money for the video game industry. Right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot of money. But Universal's, Universal's bankrolling them. They think that this is going to be success. So <clears throat> they get this PlayStation prototype. They start messing with it. Without getting into some very technical language here that these guys are way better at explaining than I am, they run a bunch of tests and they realize that if they switch some things around in the hardware they could get better frame rates than they had been told by Sony. No, everything here is really new. There had never been a 3D action platform game like this before, and because of that, as you'd expect, they ran into some pretty serious issues. Sony wanted them to use this code, and basically Sony made this library of uh, like code, and they'd say, you have to use code from this library to make your games. So they get it, and they realize... It's terrible. The graphics hardware could render, I think I threw this number out earlier, like 120,000 polygons per second, but you'd have to run it through Sony's code. And so once you ran it through Sony's library, it would only give you about 5,000 polygons per second. Because it would it, it would eat up too much of the um, processing power and therefore they couldn't create as many polygons because it's terrible right. It code. was optimized very poorly. Yes. Right. But here's the thing. Sony's like, if you don't use our... If you don't use our library, we won't release your game, is what they told them. Mm -hmm. Okay, this library is not running with what they needed. So they start ripping apart this machine, and they're like, can we reverse engineer this? Let's see if we can just circumvent Sony and do this anyway. And so there's more power in the machine than Sony let on, and they wanted to use it. Now, the details here are really murky, and I think that this is probably purposeful why they're murky, but I guess that Andy Gavin he starts petitioning some people that he knew from Sony on how he can circumvent the code that they're given. And this is the only quote I could find on this. He goes, quote, the creative solution on both of our sides turned out to be, here's how it works. Two pieces of paper slid across a desk. You didn't hear it from me. 
Oh, so they That's got it. the info how to crack the machine and how to crack the code and turn it into something they can actually use. Right. Illegally. Sure. Well, not illegally, but against Sony's wishes. Pa Paralegally. It's <laughs> yeah. So apparently someone someone in Sony he knew was like, just take this paper and shut up and you didn't get this from okay. me. Right. Well, turns out it was exactly what they needed. And they start figuring out how to make the machine give them this this power, this oomph that they that they want to render things. Now, I'm not sure in the timeline here, but they all reference something that Dave Bag Baguette made that was called the DLE. It was Dave's level editor, and it let them bypass a lot of this shit on the machine. And there was talk that they were all doing stuff with Dave's level editor, and it would crash all the time. And it would either play a noise where it would play Dave's voice, it would go, Dave's level editor has crashed. Or sometimes it would randomly play noises of the dog that was in the office barking very loudly when it would crash. <laughs> so imagine being at Universal, right? You're walking past this hallway, they're slamming loud music, and all it's just going, Dave's level editor has crashed. They must have had a blast at that time. They deconstruct oh, machines sure. that they were given that were worth more than a house at that time. They they would uh, yeah. this it must have been great fun for them and also quite stressful because they wanted to make something that is worth their standards so i'll i'll quickly skip ahead real real fast here um and and we can talk about this more in a minute but like they worked like an insane amount like an absolutely insane amount and we'll talk about it here in a minute but like they did do some stuff in their off time where they would apparently there's some famous stories where they would steal the carts at universal and they would try to see how fast they could make them go. And Jason Rubin found out that there was a limiter that all the carts could go no faster than 30 miles an hour. But the limiter was only on going like forward, not in reverse. Mm. And so they would do these things in the back lots of Universal to see how fast they could make the carts go. And apparently there's a story where he got one of the carts to go to 70 miles an hour and threw it into a river and a crane had to come and pull it out. It's, it's so, a good thing that they didn't die doing that because 70 miles per hour yeah. is a lot of miles per hour. It's very fast <laughs> in a golf cart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to development. They wanted the intense action that you could get from platformers, but how do you keep that pace when you transition to 3D? Like, think about Donkey Kong Country, right? It's it's You can move around, you can do things, but it's still pretty fast. Not as, not as fast as Sonic, I'd say, but it's fast. Yeah. So how do you do that? If In 2D, if you come up against a bunch of enemies, right? There's five enemies in a row on the screen. You have to deal with each enemy or jump over them or whatever, right? But in 3D... Couldn't you just walk around the enemies, right? Like you just, oh, I'm going to take a wide path and ignore them. So how do you, like, how do you keep that fresh? How do you force people to fight? How do enemies? you limit the space without actually getting rid of your 3D capabilities? Exactly. And you're, you're actually on the right path here. They started making levels creatively where they would remove a dimension of gameplay. A famous crash trope involves you getting chased by the boulder and they switched, like they switched it so that you were running toward the screen instead. Yes. And I liked what uh, Andy Gavin said about it. He said the dimension we're actually removing there is time, because you don't have time to wait. You don't have time to th to notice that the levels aren't as dense as you th imagine them to be. Okay. Right? It's also a linear run. Like all of the levels were linear, so you just you went on one path where the game wanted you to go exactly. Or they might say, "All right, 
you're gonna you're gonna be on the back of this boar that you're gonna ride, and the boar always goes at one set speed, and so like that's a way they limit your your autonomy in the game. You might have narrower levels, enemies that follow you if you avoid them, other elements in the game that move. You would, I, th- I remember that you would have side scroller levels, where you. But they would play around with that. Like you would have a side scroller level, but sometimes you could move in 3D and actually go behind something. But you are used that that's not possible on that level, so you wouldn't try it out if you didn't know or experiment right. with it. That's pretty clever. It's yeah, it's like a quasi 3D or like a quasi 2D thing, yeah. like 2D 3D. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to put it. They say you know we want we want very fluid animations. We talked about this. And what they used to have back then for 3D graphics, and this is where I'm going to bring in Virtua Fighter, is they used to have, basically, you'd make a skeleton of a character, whatever it may be, and that would be what would move, and it would have a couple of joints, right? I think in one interview I watched, he described it as a robot, right? You'd move your arm one, and you'd turn your hand, and like those were like the couple of joints that you'd have to move a character around. So for things like fighting games, like... Virtua Fighter that was popular at the time, it wasn't a huge deal to have a ton of articulation because basically you just put art on these bones. Like you basically paste the art onto these these characters, but they ended up being really stiff. Looney Tunes characters aren't really stiff, right? So if you want Crash to be this wacky cartoon character who does all these things and limbs that might change shape whenever he gets hit or flattened or whatever, how do you get around that? They realize, well, we've got these really killer workstations that they used for like Jurassic Park. So why don't we figure out how to like distort characters and change their structures around? And this was really new at the time. They come up with this idea. What they're going to do, they trace every single vertex on the character. So have you ever seen like, uh, the best way I can describe this is, have you ever seen like someone doing like motion capture and they have all the little pips on them? Yes, that can be captured, yeah. So instead of doing a skeleton, they basically just took all of those little dots and figured out where they would be. And so they said, okay, what if we traced every single vertex and where it's going to be on the screen and on the character at the time? That would allow us to then change those vertexes around and move them and make them malleable in a way that other developers can't do. But here's the problem. That led to a huge amount of data, like one that the PlayStation couldn't handle. They come up with this idea. What if they filter out all of the animation at the time that wasn't necessary? So like if a part of Crash didn't need to move in a scene like his torso, right? They just wouldn't animate movement on the torso. So it would just be something they didn't have to track. Okay. They create a specialized program to figure out which vertexes they need and which ones they didn't, and it cut their data down to a 50th of the size, That's which is pretty substantial. Very substantial, especially if you have um, as limited processing power as you had back then. It's true. So <clears throat> one thing that Dave, the programmer, mentioned, uh, this is kind of a longer quote, but I really like this, quote, We also did very, very aggressive pre-computations of the scenes, which basically is the reason why the frames of our game had a lot more polygons than every other game at the time. Essentially, what we did was, every polygon that ended up on the screen, we had already rendered on our SGI workstations ahead of time, so we could figure out the order of the polygons. You want to draw them from farthest away to nearest, right? But the question is, how do you figure that out? How do you figure out which is the farthest away and then which is the next farthest away? 
that's a sorting problem, and the PlayStation didn't have the hardware to do that. So we basically did that ahead of time, and then stored not only the list in order, but also that meant, let's say, you had a big tree that was in front of some other object, so therefore it would occlude the other object, right? Like it would cover it up. <clears throat> that meant you didn't even have to draw the polygons behind the tree, they just weren't there at all. That meant we were only drawing polygons that were ultimately visible, uh, even though we might have been rendering 2,000 polygons or 2,400, something in that ballpark, it looked like we were rendering 5,000 polygons. But they, because they never render what's not visible. Exactly. They optimized it as best as they could to go, if there's a rock in front of the tree, you don't need to render the part of the tree that they're never going to see. Yes. And so that they saved valuable space to work within the hardware that the PlayStation had access to. Yeah. Anyway, I just found that fascinating. I'm sure that they do that all the time now, and they think about what to render and what not. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I think it's one of the most fascinating things if you look back at those games from the 80s and 90s, is how creative they had to get to make their games as detailed and wonderful as they actually are. Because if you look at a game as Crash Bandicoot, it's a beautiful game. It, it looks mm -hmm. so smooth and so pretty. And that also comes down to a lot of optimization. And that's that's a great thing that came from it's that. True. And I think that... I think to, to add on to that and, and agree with you, we were having a discussion, some of our, you know, our friends in the community, we were talking the other day and, and someone said something about, well, if you're, if you have a bad computer, just play some, some little indie games, you know, they're not going to be as hard on your system. And we were like, well, that's not necessarily true because they don't have to optimize them in the way that they did previously. You don't have to go, oh, we, you know, we have to fit into these limitations of this hardware and this hardware only instead it's just we'll just make a game and maybe it has seven gigs of stuff in it that it doesn't need but we don't need to optimize it because everybody's got a computer at this point or or whatever especially a very powerful computer so optimization is not necessary as much anymore right i would i would, I would totally agree one issue that they ran into with the game is that it wasn't very fun <laughs> at the time. So the problem was is that they wanted to add more stuff to do. I think Jason Rubin had in one of his interviews, he said, you know, everybody talks about first alpha and first public build and things like that, but no one talks about first fun. At what point did the game become fun? And so Crash was so detailed that Crash was using up over a third of the available polygons that they had on the screen. The main character, they wanted him to be fluid and, and, and you know, move around and such. So they put a lot of their detail into him. You're going to be staring at him the whole game, make him pretty, right? Unfortunately, that didn't leave them with the level design or anything. That didn't leave them with a lot of room to render things. Someone is like, okay, what do we put into this game that we can interact with? And they were like, well, we don't have any polygons. Crash is just, he's just too detailed. He's taking up too much of our stuff. And they go, well, what about a box? Boxes are easy. And so... They come up with boxes. Boxes are simple. You can put little letters on them. And so then all of a sudden, this really easy to render thing, given the few polygons that they had to work with, starts being like they start ma mapping it out. And they're like, well, we can use the boxes to give people hard choices. You know, do you go for the boxes, even though they're in a dangerous spot? Or do you ignore the boxes and complete the level and not get the gem? Some boxes might blow up. We'll use some boxes as checkpoints. And this is actually essential to Crash Bandicoot's gameplay because the entire gameplay um, revolves around maneuvering boxes. 
that's actually nothing else. The entire level looked like looks like boxes stacked together, and you have these boxes. There you have, I think, three or four kinds of boxes, or even five. Like some give you these apples that you can pick up. Some explode if you touch them. Some explode slowly if you touch them. Some make you bounce. Mm -hmm. Some are checkpoints, as you said, and they build these levels and also it kind of touches something that you said earlier which is that they had to make a 3d platformer exciting and they had to manage the space that they gave to the people and they did that a lot by putting these boxes in the levels that you had to get around which is something that is incredibly fun. i agree i think it's the most addicting part of the yes. game and i think that it was a brilliant idea and it was in, it was inspired by you know having no polygons left to use and just saying fuck it we'll draw boxes. Yes. So they run into another hardware issue, and I really I thought this was really cool. Imagine that the PlayStation had an internal memory, and it was only two megabytes. So it was this little it was this little chip. I've seen the pictures, right? And so how games would work back then is you would load stuff from the CD onto the memory, and then that would get used for what you were playing. So imagine you boot up a game back in the day. And then it would load what you needed in between levels. So let's say, I don't know, you're playing, what was the game I used to play when I was younger? Siphon Filter. I played Siphon Filter on the PS1. Well, there would always be long loading screens because what was occurring on those loading screens was it was finding the stuff on the disc that it needed, copying it into the memory, and then you accessed it from the memory. Yes. You weren't actually, the only time you'd access the disc is when you were needing to pull something from it, right? But discs could hold 640 megabytes at the time. But they ended up on most games that came out being mostly empty space because everything that was needed for the game had to be loaded onto the PlayStation internal memory. So this really limited what you could do. What they decided to do is Andy Gavin, in an interview I was listening to, he talked about this. He said, you know, I knew that I could make levels bigger and, and use more memory. I just had to figure out how to do it. So what they decided to do was make levels bigger than what they needed at any one time. And they would break these levels up into these teeny tiny little packets of data that would load where, depending on where you were at in the level. So depending on what direction you walked, and in, one of, in most levels it would only let you go like one or two very specific ways, it would start loading in the stuff that you were about to encounter and getting rid of stuff off the memory that you didn't need anymore. So it was only keeping, instead of loading in an entire level and you play the entire level off of the memory, it was bringing things in and removing them as needed. That makes a lot of so sense because Crash Bandicoot does this thing a lot where it stops you from going back by you have to drop off a ledge or something that you can't get back up to. And I mm -hmm. bet that's the reason for that, to, to cut the level up into, into bits. Right. So it was always pulling in advance and enough time to pull what they wanted, which let them do things with more space. So here's Andy Gavin, quote, Crash textures are all pretty sharp with a lot of color and detail. And Tomb Raiders, I don't know if you know Tomb Raiders yes. from the time, right? Are all like washed out and pixely and whatever because they only have so much memory. They don't have any place to put all of the extra texture. We had 20, 30 times the amount of space for it. Or the number of polygons in the level. Something like Tomb Raider, it's pretty blocky, like square corridors or whatever. And Crash has like weird shapes and whatever because we have so many more polygons. That is absolutely something that stands out. How terrible the first Tomb Raider game looked and oh, yeah. how incredibly oh, yeah. good the Crash Bandicoot games look. So I remember, I think this is a side story. I told you recently that I bought my father an old uh, PlayStation 1 unit and or like a, 
a PlayStation Classic, I think they're called. And I remember him talking to me about playing Tomb Raider, and he's like, man, I forgot how bad this looked. Yes. <laughs> like, because it was the 90s, and it, I'm sure that at the time you were like, whoa, 3D. Absolutely, but, like, and this really is bad. not to play down that Tomb Raider is still a great game that had a lot of great design ideas. But still, if you compare the two, um, Crash Bandicoot just looks smooth. It does. So I think what's really fascinating about this is that it allowed them to use the CD as like, instead of a repository for data, it was almost like it was part of the hardware. And so this constant drawing off of the disc, it's done by games a lot now, but it was revolutionary for the 90s. So I told you I'd talk about this a little bit later too, but given that there was a ton of work to do, their work culture was nuts. People spoke of how it like, really took this huge toll on them physically, mentally, etc., because they were basically removed from normal society. So here's Jason Rubin. Quote, So I think if there was a culture, the culture was just being driven to do well and to work really, really hard. And I know if you ask the other teammates, the actual naughty dogs, as opposed to people at Universal with normal business hours, that team was working 16-hour days every day. Andy didn't have a day out of the office. I remember in 97, I had one day I was sick that year, including holidays. You just didn't leave. We worked hard. This was their empire. They built this from when they were 12 years old. These guys knew nothing else. Yep. This was everything they had. I think it makes total sense that they didn't even know how to leave because they've always been in it. Yeah. Yep. And what do you do when you're you're getting these publishing deals for games and you were just a couple of kids who wanted to make stuff on your Apple computers. And now you have like your own place at Universal with these fancy high tech machines. I can totally understand why you'd never want to leave and you would pour all of your heart into Absolutely. it. So once they had an alpha of the game that they made on their dev unit, they decide to show it to Sony. It's time. So remember that guy Kurosaki, I told you, who had connections with Sequest. Well, Sequest lets them come in. Like He gets his buddies at Sequest to let them come in, and they use the show's editing bay to come up with a demo to send to Sony. And you did this by literally creating a VHS tape of someone playing the game. Gavin gives a tape to a friend at Sony and says, hey, pass this tape on. This isn't a direct quote, but it was basically like, hey, pass this tape on to the people who need to see it. And they did. And Sony absolutely loved it they sent people to speak with them and could not believe what they had made on their machine like all the stuff that i read is basically like their jaws hit the floor sony was like so impressed by it that they were scared of what they were doing and they're like you're gonna break our hardware you're gonna destroy our hardware because if you're using all of these parts to read the cd nonstop, it's gonna degrade and it's gonna kill our machine so they started like freaking out. And also when they debuted it later, I'll throw this in here too. There were people who thought it was fake. Yeah. They were like, this is, this has been pre-rendered and been yeah. set up. One funny thing about the PlayStation one, about breaking the PlayStation one, there's one thing that did happen to the PlayStation one. If you had it for too long, there was a little notch on the, on the cover. And mm -hmm. after about five to six years, it would break. So you couldn't close it anymore. And if you couldn't close the cover where the, under which the disc was hidden, you couldn't right. open it up anymore, uh, um, start it up anymore. So what you would have to do is you would have to turn around the PlayStation and set it on its head so you would be able to start it up. Oh, man. In, in the reverse of that, I had, when I was younger, 
<laughs> my dad actually showed me how to do this. There was this little piece that you could stick into the back of the PlayStation. I'll have to find it sometime when I'm going through that old stuff. It was like basically like a, like the equivalent of like a Game Shark. You know, remember what a Game Shark was, or like um, that you had to put into that you could put in cheat codes and even maybe even play crack games. Mm -hmm. So what you would do is you could trick the PlayStation into playing copied games yes. and so you'd put i remember what you used to have to do is you'd put the thing in the back and you would put a real game into the playstation and you would start it and it would go to the boot it like it would bypass the menu where it checked to make sure that the game was real it would then go to the boot menu for this little side thing the game shark or whatever the hell it was called you would you would have this little spring that would keep the playstation open while it like the disc would run open but it thought that it was closed You'd pop the real disc out, put a burned disc in, and you could play whatever you wanted. So I would like literally get my friends to lend me their games. I would burn them on the CD burner, and then I would bypass the state PlayStation's hardware so I could play games that I didn't yeah, have. Yeah, I will totally not include this in the final copy of this episode, but it's good that you know what <laughs> me about. What do you think? What do you think Sony's going to come sue me? <laughs> Oh, hey, we heard when you were nine that you hacked the PlayStation to play copied games. I, I, I would believe anything. They will, they will come fun. to you and take you down. Yeah, yeah they're going to destroy, destroy my podcast empire. Yes. <laughs> All two episodes so yes. far. Okay, so we want, we want the residuals on the podcast that you're not making money on. <laughs> okay all right all right <laughs> so so, so they, <laughs> they make this tape okay they make this tape and they're like all right sony here's your mascot <laughs> you don't have your mascot here it is and sony's like we don't want a mascot <laughs> they didn't want to get up behind a mascot their thought was we want our hardware to be the driving yes. thing we don't want it to be a character so like Why did you buy a Genesis? Well, the Genesis was cool, but you bought it because you wanted Sonic. Sonic was the hot thing. We want this enduring thing. But the timing here is really important because as they neared the end of production on Crash, uh, Nintendo was just about to put out Mario 64. Sonic was still a thing. And Sega was working on a new mascot with a game that they had called Knights. N-I-G-H-T-S. Yes. So more, we'll do more on that if we ever do a Sega Saturn episode, which can be its whole own ball game. <clears throat> Even though Sony wanted to lean into their branding rather than a mascot, they decided, you know, we need a mascot. So Sony decides to go all in with Crash, and they license the rights from Universal to put the game on their system. They ended up really needing it. Wow, nice. But I maybe I remember that there was a PlayStation One advertisement that also included Crash Bandicoot, but I don't remember that it was like as big of a mascot as Mario is for Nintendo or Sonic was for Sega. Or am I incorrect? I wouldn't say this? that it... We'll, we'll get to some okay. of the, the stats let's on that. Yeah, yeah. But that's a, that's a good thing to note. Okay, so Crash Bandicoot officially launches, launches in 1996 and it was unveiled at E3 that year. They buy the space that is directly across from Nintendo's booth. Yes. Nintendo is there showing off Super Mario 64. And Sony knew what they had. They were like, this is crazier looking and flashier and more fun than anything that we have right now. And so they were going to originally debut Twisted Metal. Do you know Twisted Metal? Okay, Twisted Metal is this game about cars that are like you're in a car and you have like a special tricked out car and you fight other cars. 
It was like a battle royale of cars. That sounds fun. It was so fun. They kicked Twisted Metal out from the front. They moved Twisted Metal to the back and they put Crash there instead. And it is an absolute hit. There is a famous story where uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, the guy I just told you about earlier, who famously made Mario and Zelda, came over from the Nintendo booth and stood in front of the Crash booth like amazed and played Crash for an hour and a half hanging out with the team. And the team went bonkers. So they're like, here's this person who is like our childhood idol who is standing here playing this game that we made and is impressed that with must us. Be the How best feeling to have one of your heroes come to you and love what you've created. Yeah. yeah. One thing about that, because Nintendo put out Mario 64 at that time, and they probably ran into the same issue of creating a 3D platformer. And now that I think of it, I think they didn't solve it as well as the Crash Bandicoot creators from Naughty Dog did it, because what Mario 64 does a lot is that it, the levels are unnecessarily big. I think that is a key difference between Mario and, and Crash, and I think it's all about what you want. Because Mario is very open, and you have to sort of puzzle things out, like, well, I have to go here and stomp on the thing and then go into this room and get to the place. And so, like, you can wander, you can walk around a Goomba if you Absolutely. want. Absolutely. Right? And they start implementing these first open world ideas for 3D open world games. Yes. Right. And so I think that, you know, the legacy of Mario 64 is probably bigger than Crash in a way. Yes. Like, well, there's reasons for that that we'll talk about. I think that it's sort of six of one, half dozen of another, yeah. if that makes sense. I, I actually, I don't like Mario 64 less. I think Mario 64 is one of my favorite games I ever played on a Nintendo machine. I just, that now that I think of it, I was like, I think the whole 3D platformer thing was more focused in Crash Bandicoot. I would agree. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. <clears throat> so the marketing for Crash was very aggressive. There were, there's this marketing team came up with this idea. What if we had a guy in, the, in this whole commercial series, what if we had a guy who was so obsessed with Crash Bandicoot that he was in a Crash Bandicoot costume yelling at Nintendo with a megaphone? And so they would send him to all of these places on this journey that he was going on where he'd be in like a truck and he'd be like yelling things out of this megaphone about Crash Bandicoot so that he would eventually get to Nintendo's offices for whatever it was he was going to do to tell them that his game was better. And so... I think that the, if I remember reading correctly, the way that the commercials ended was that he shows up at Nintendo's offices, but he's at the wrong building. Like in real life, he was, they actually went to the Nintendo offices, but it was like a separate building where none of them were. And he's yelling at the wrong building. And that's like what part of the fun is, right? <laughs> Very aggressive. You know, he's like harassing Nintendo employees. Yeah. That's also and a point so, about Crash Bandicoot. Crash Bandicoot has kind of a harassy feel about it because the, 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 the character is kind of, kind of weird and hyper aggressive so it makes sense that they go around and start being really mean to Nintendo. Well, I think they said I can't remember who said this but it was basically something in the effect of like Crash is like an unwitting like an unwitting pawn and so we didn't want Crash to be mean we wanted it to be this crazed fan who was mean so that we'd never get like Crash would never get accused of being like a mean character yeah. but they could still do the aggressive 90s marketing that That's they right. wanted. Crash isn't, so. but, but Crash is a bit mean though. Yes, I think he's portrayed as pretty stupid but he's also That's a better but way he's it, yeah. also portrayed as being hyper strong and using it 
indiscriminately against all of his foes to just violently <laughs> beat them. Yeah, yeah. So they're on this this long campaign, right? There's some go look those commercials up if you ever get a yeah. chance. They're pretty funny. I mean, they're they're bad '90s commercials, right? But I won't get into all of these, but there are some pretty funny stories about Andy and Jason doing press and going to all these different countries over like the course of like a week to do this press tour. And it's literally just like they are shit faced the entire time, just completely hammered. Like, <laughs> OK, we're here. We're doing this interview and we're shit faced drunk. Let's go upstairs and drink the whole mini bar. Hey, we just met some new people and they've never left Britain. Let's get on a train and go somewhere else. And we're shit faced on the train. We're going to sleep for an hour and then we're going to get drink more. And now it's time to wake up for an interview and like crazy. I'm going to go out on Olympia and say it was the 90s and they worked for Universal and they probably took a lot of coke. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? They, they they, never did all that. that I saw in the interviews was that they was that they drank a yeah. lot. So, okay. you know, I'm sure if they did more, they wouldn't admit it. But yes. early receptions of the game. Interestingly, kind of mixed. The biggest complaint was that compared to Mario, which was fully 3D, was that Crash forced you to go in a specific direction. But Sony had more users who owned the console than the 64, so their sales were better than Nintendo, even though Mario rated a little higher than Crash. The best number that I could find was that the first Crash game sold around 6 million copies worldwide during its life cycle. But what's notable about the first Crash 2 is that Crash is the first game made by a Western studio that really sold well in Japan. So it sold more than a million copies in Japan, and it was the first time that a Western game had done that in the Japanese market. Wow. So interestingly, uh, they had to change their marketing in a lot of ways because they were worried that Japanese gamers would be less likely to buy the game if it was known that it came from a Western company, so they kept that under wraps for like a year. That's interesting. That's very interesting, um, especially since that happened the other way around when Sonic was released to the U.S., and um, mm -hmm. it kind of shows how different gaming culture is in both the U.S. and Japan. It's really interesting. Yeah, there are other stories similar to their previous press tour where they're just like totally shit faced in Japan, and the reporters are like, "You're doing very well for how hungover you are." <laughs> like, oh yes, yeah, those Japanese like, businessmen, I can recognize a drunk person. Yeah, there was. I I don't know if this is at the same time, but I know that there's a story where they met the guy that they called the father of the PlayStation, like basically the guy who made it. And they like he didn't really speak a lot of English and they didn't really speak any Japanese. And so they're like at this party and he's trying to tell them what a great job they've done. But no one can communicate with each other. <laughs> so and everybody's like shit faced. So I, I, I bet even without language, they were able to appreciate each other. One would hope. Yes. They start bringing more people onto their team and they start working on Crash 2. By the end of the time that they were done with Crash 2, they had 14 people. Four programmers, six artists, one designer, and three support staff. And so they had already planned that if the game was a hit, that they would make more, and that they wanted to start implementing features that they had skipped in the first game. And Sony was so enthralled with Crash that they said, we need you to get another game out by the end of the year. So instead of having two years to make the second Crash game, they had one. So this effectively gave them nine months to put out a new Crash game, and this meant that a lot of stuff that they wanted to do had to be cut. Kurosaki, the artist who got them in with like the C-Lab producers and stuff, 
quit the company and didn't come back to Naughty Dog for like seven years because of how stressful the first Crash game was, and he didn't want to do it again. I can imagine. The, these guys were stressed out before, as we talked about, but this must have mm-hmm. ruined any kind of positive atmosphere in the company. And imagine like knowing that you're going to have to not only crunch, but also that you won't really be able to realize your full artistic potential. I can understand leaving for yeah. a while. Okay, I, so. I, I just have to th- say something. I gave these guys a bit of shit in the beginning because they were young and getting successful fast, but I think it was unwarranted because I think they are have, they, they are forced to go through a life where they have to be more successful and scale up their success and skills so fast that that's hyper-stressful for a person and maybe even a friendship. These two guys were best friends for their entire childhood. And that they kept it together for that long. I don't know what's going to happen next. That That's impressive. And I think these guys I agree. have done a fabulous job. Because as a child, the games that these guys created, I love them. I played so much Crash Bandicoot. I, I hope they are well yeah. now. <laughs> Just wanted to say that. Well, I, I do have a little bit of info on them that we'll talk about near the end. To make Crash 2, they rewrite 80% of the game's engine and code and optimize it even more. They redesign their surfacing tools for their artists so that they can re-streamline the process of creating assets. And through the optimization of the code that they had for one, Crash 1, that helped them to have better infrastructure to design the game with so they could start doing more complex things than they originally could. So the game had bigger levels. It had more paths that you could take, like branching paths. It had three to four times the amount of enemies, a camera that would move around more dynamically, The graphics looked better. It looked much sleeker. Crash 2 had roughly eight times the amount of animation that the first one did, all on the same hardware. If you look at the Crash Bandicoot installments, they continuously get better. Crash Bandicoot 2 is amazing in comparison to Crash Bandicoot 1. It's a madness. And they only had one year for it. That makes it even crazier. Mm -hmm. 3 is still my favorite, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. 2 added new moves for Crash to use weird control schemes. Basically, they took the basic mechanics of the game and they just made them better. But during this time, remember, Crash is blowing up. Universal became more of a middleman in the relationship. They're not really doing anything at this point. And Sony was basically funding the games for this mascot that was owned by Universal, which would then give them, you know, basically like I read something where it was like Sony would give Universal the money, Universal would hold on to it, and take some kind of cut of it or something, and then disperse money into their accounts later. And so Universal's just this middleman giving them space to work. And there were a couple people that they spoke fondly of in the interviews that they liked working with, but they were like, well, what is Universal even doing for us at this point? So here's here's Ruben. Quote, It was top of the world in terms of characters. There were Pizza Hut giveaways. The Australian Surfing Commission, their entire policy for kids' safety was done with Crash. The TGV train going from London to Paris had Crash on it. If you got off a plane in an airport in Tokyo, there was a giant Crash room. Crash was becoming huge. Unfortunately, Universal, as a company, became less and less relevant as time went on. Crash 2, Cortex Strikes Back drops in November 1997. It hits the market hard. And Naughty Dog starts getting some big name recognition and some big name talent to come and work for them. There was more video game talent on the market at the time because as we'll maybe talk about in another episode, Sega had started firing people when the Sega Saturn bombed horrifically. And 
the Sega Saturn's bombing, and so they still have a lot of their original team, but it allowed them to draw in a lot of talent that they might not have if the market hadn't been at that time. I'll tell you a little interesting anecdote about that. There was one guy that they hired who came in to speak with them, and he had just come from working as like a high-name guy at Sega, and but Sega had like fired him, and he w- he spoke about how Sega would fly him on a jet and you know to get from place to place to do marketing they give him a pro you know there'd be five of them and they'd all get their own sports car rental and everything was paid for and they're meeting like supermodels and all this stuff and then all of a sudden he gets canned and he goes to talk to these guys at naughty dog and they're just in this back room this like gross back room at universal putting together games and they're like the interview is at like 8 PM at night or something. And they're just like, you know what? Go do your other interviews and come back to us at the end. And if you still think you want to work with us, come back. And the guy was like, the fuck? Like these are the guys that made crash bandicoot. Right. And he said that he realized that at Sega, he was always just a number, right? Like he was always just artist five or whatever. But he, like when he joined Naughty Dog, he felt like he was joining like a real team and that even though like the pay wasn't as great, even though he wouldn't be in like crazy Ferraris or whatever, that he could do something fulfilling. And I, I liked hearing that about their culture there. Yeah, that's so. always, I think that if you are an artist, that might be a choice you will have to do often is um, do I want to make um, secure money and have a life that is not just filled with all the work I have to do or do I commit to my art completely and let it drain me because I love how it drains me. Right. Yeah. I think that's completely fair. And it's fascinating to me to hear what the industry was like at that time. Yes. Okay. So the game's mostly uh, two, mostly produced by the same people. It sold 4 million copies in the U S and over a million in Japan reviews for were good, but said that it didn't deviate enough from the formula, but still the game sold pretty well and looked gorgeous compared to the first one. It was even prettier. And I remember that there were like a lot of new moves that you could use, um, maybe like crawl around and you could slide. And I think you could do like, maybe it was in three, but you could do like a hover thing where you'd like spin, you know, there were like little, little updates, but it was mostly the same game. Yeah. You could even combine certain moves because if you could combine the slide with the jump, you could somehow jump much further and higher. Um, I think you're right. You would have to like, which made the um, entire game feel much faster and the difficulty curve would go up much faster. Yeah. So here's Jason Rubin on, on that particular time. Quote, we created what was the third most successful piece of content that year. I think that was Crash 2 at Universal. So the most valuable thing they had on a return on investment was their theme park. The second was Jurassic Park the movie and the third was B- Crash Bandicoot. Sandy Kleiman, who's a person you don't need to worry about had just started and he said who are these people that created a hundred million plus of profit for universal and someone said quote oh it's these eight dorks in a chalet somewhere down the road here and you don't ever have to deal with them <laughs> okay just one thing imagine sure. the smell just just <laughs> oh okay all right all right i'll skip ahead really quickly i was gonna save this for our fun facts at the end okay so <laughs> 
In almost every development story I read, I'm talking Way of the Warrior was the earliest that I heard about this. They were absolutely filthy. The reports were that they were just <laughs> disgusting. In that like uh, apartment at MIT, they had his dog living there Ooh. and people would come in and they would scrape the floor with their foot and they would see the carpet underneath. Yeah, That's how mm -hmm. Basically, it was crowded. It was loud. It was filthy. Dog hair all over the floor. Furniture that didn't match. Match. Everything is gross. Everyone's huddled in this, you know, these basically one or two rooms. They're stuck together. The guy who was interviewing, I think it was that same interview. He's like, I walked in. They're all hanging out at like 10 p.m. Everyone else has gone home. And they're throwing burgers onto the floor. And this dog is just like scarfing them up. <laughs> what is this so it's yeah totally funny. so <laughs> development for crash 3 begins it's bigger it's better this time they had a staff of 15 people three programmers seven artists three designers to support the theme of this one is a time travel mechanic which i really yeah. liked as a kid they added some levels with a second playable character this is crash's sister coco they refined the code even further to support more detailed levels free roaming levels were, were what came around at this time. Like you could literally, they would just plop you in a place and you could f drive around on a plane or on a, on a jet ski. You could swim, you could ride a motorcycle. The distance in which you could see things in the game was up to 10 times what the first yes, game could the handle. distance you could see in the f games before was never too far. You always had a lim yeah. limited sight, which we talked about is because they had limited resources. Exactly, until they optimized this code yes. further. But I mean, man, they just did everything. It was like every idea that they ever had for Crash, they put into a game. There was dinosaurs, there's robots, there's bazookas. You know, you could swim. You, I mean, the motorcycle levels were cool. Yeah. They added time trials, which is probably why I like speedrunning these days. Uh, I would do all the time trials. I loved them. And because they already had this really intimate idea of what the hardware could do, they said, look, we don't need to do that much other than just make this, put all of our development time and make this as fun as possible. And they did. So a year later, Crash 3 comes out November 1998. So, the, I mean, they're banging them out, man. Game after game. And I remember thinking, and, and you know, I'll take your opinions on this too. I think we're maybe on the same page, but I remember thinking it was just great when I was a kid. And you unlocked all these neat new abilities. It changed the game. It was fun. The level variety was really cool. It looked, it, it was just so fun to play. I just, man, so many hours I spent in my room playing it. It was just really something for the time. And it's getting through it felt kind of cathartic because it, it got really difficult to the end and defeating the last boss, which usually was neocortex mm -hmm. was pretty difficult and felt pretty good because it was you had to get through a lot of levels to get to it that had some really difficult parts about it and i still get trauma when i when i sometimes i replay the game because there's mm -hmm. a remaster of it now and yeah. i still there's still parts of these levels that are ingrained into my mind. Just if I hear the sound that shows up or sometimes there's these stomping noises from things that kill you, my, my, my body starts to shiver and I'm like, oh no, not again. I spent 20, 20 hours <laughs> as a child getting through this. It's true. Yeah, and they're hard. Like, I think 
Crash 1 was the hardest, but they got progressively easier because they gave you more, a little more leniency. And that's, I didn't talk about this on Crash 1, but I think that they discussed that the game is really hard because they didn't have as much of a sense of like scaling, right? Like that things could, should get harder as you go. It'd just be like, you just get to a level and it would be really hard. And you'd be like, uh-oh, what do I do? I can't go, get past this now. So they tried to fix that. That's something that is very difficult to learn to scale a game like that properly. <clears throat> so it sold about 5.7 million copies worldwide. 1999, the next year, they put out a game called Crash Team Racing. This one was self-funded, and they were already starting to see a lot of strain with Universal. But they work out a deal with Universal to make it into a Crash game. They, they decided they want to make a racing game, and then along the way, someone went, this would make a really good Crash game, wouldn't it? And they were like, yeah, let's do it. And it was kind of similar to Mario Kart in some ways. But I always felt like that the racing franchise that came out of Crash Bandicoot was just Sony trying to also have Mario Kart. And that's, yes. why, I, that's why I didn't like it at all. <laughs> yeah. So this relationship with Universal was weird because they owned Crash, but no one really wanted to work with each other. So after Crash Team Racing, uh, the guys decide that they're going to walk away from Universal and their deal they had to make Crash games. Now, there's a very long story here that I won't get into, but they end up selling Naughty Dog to Sony in 2001 while they're on in production of their next game series, Jack and Daxter. Mm -hmm. Naughty Dog never made a Crash game again. Crash ended up being owned by various companies through various mergers and then eventually Activision, and they tried to create Crash games without most of the original people. The games did not sell well. Crash fell pretty hard from grace. And not only were the guys disappointed that this thing, this like magnum opus that they had made, yeah. was like held by other people, but Sony was disappointed too. Because remember, Sony said, we don't want a mascot, and then threw their entire weight behind a mascot that they then didn't own. Yes. And so Sony's like, we can't keep funding Crash games if we're going to have to keep paying out some other company that owns the rights and doesn't use them, right? Like, does, like we can't make the profit off of it. Crash's future was out of Naughty Dog's hands. Uh, they didn't own the character and neither did Sony. And by my count, and this might be slightly off, there was about roughly 14 more Crash games across various systems that have come out since then, but none of them ever really captured that I magic. know none of them. I only know the three first yeah. games and that stupid racing game. I remember when I was probably a late teen, I went to visit one of my cousins, and she had her PS2 there, and there was it was Crash 4 you know, I, can't, I don't even remember what it was called. And I was like, they made another Crash game? How did I not hear about this? And I never ended up I never ended up playing it because I went online and I looked stuff up about it and it was like, this is really bad, don't play it. Okay, good. <laughs> so, I, I, I imagined you starting it up being like, oh, another Crash game. This was like one of my favorite games uh -huh. that you played and the, your face slowly turns into a mask of pain. What have <laughs> they done? What yeah. have they done Just to my childhood terrible. friend? Why? <laughs> why, why has he been corrupted nope. is it, yeah i'm it's probably better i never yeah. played them <clears throat> in recent years naughty dog is actually still with sony and they're still kicking out some pretty awesome games sony still gives them the space that they need to produce the stuff that they want in their own way and they fund their projects other big name things that they've made jack and daxter the last of us and the uncharted oh, series man, the last of us is so great and uncharted too so yeah. note andy gavin left the company in 2004 and went on to other projects. He started writing books. That's most of what I've seen from him, although he has like a blog that he updates very um, infrequently. I think he's mostly doing writing. Do you know now. what kind of books? Fantasy books, I think. Jason Rubin 
left in 2004 as well after he decried there was some like famous speech he gave where he decried that like people in the industry weren't getting enough credit for the games that they had made and that like these big corporations were like taking people's things from them and so he quit in 2004 but then he went on to become the president of the company thq which you've probably played a game or two by they went defunct at some point he was their president when they crashed and the last information that I could find on him was that he was actually still working for Oculus, uh, making VR stuff after they were bought up by Facebook. Awesome. So he's still in the industry. Andy Gavin doesn't appear to be in the industry, at least from what I could see. Now, note, there was a remake of Crash that came out called the Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy yep. that released on modern consoles and PC in 2017. That game has sold over 10 million copies. So it sold better than any of their originals did. Yes. So... If any of you out there are listening and you say, I really want to try out Crash Bandicoot, I think that's the best way to do it. It's pretty polished and it, it just it feels so I got good. it as soon as it so. came out for as much as a new game would cost. And I didn't regret it because I put a lot of time into it. It's yeah. really great. Um, they have another racing game. They're making another Crash Team Racing this year. So like Crash's legacy isn't like dead. So they can ruin the franchise again. Yeah, of course. They are owned by Activision now. Awesome. So. Note. Let's talk legacy here, right? Crash games are some of the best-selling PlayStation games of the time. And I think what I really liked about this story is that, regardless of what you think of these two guys, they were two 12-year-olds who decided that they liked video games and ended up making this, like, taking some really crazy and very risky maneuvers and end up creating this, like, official, unofficial mascot for this new gaming system during its heyday. And really making a mark on the industry that it had never been done before and just really doing stuff with tech that was so unheard of. Yes, and learning all of it on the run while yeah, building absolutely. this company, this development company that they had control over for a long time. Yeah. And never and realizing that selling themselves out, they did a disservice to themselves. And so they never they they tried to keep as much autonomy as possible as they went through. Yeah, and it broke down as soon as it happened. Yeah. yeah. So you want a couple of fun yes. facts as we give finish me, up? Give me those okay. fun facts. I don't know that the second one is fun. I put most of this stuff in here, uh, like in the main story. This one's fun. So at one point, Sony gets scared because they realize that they don't own Crash. So somewhere during Crash's development, they start working on their own game called Harry Jalapeno. Oh, oh why? <laughs> But then they dropped the idea when Sony just later bought Naughty Dog from Universal. So yeah, that's 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 lucky. Harry Jalapeno. <laughs> it could be the title of weird fetish porn. Just saying. <laughs> it could. Yeah, it could. Yeah. Okay, so here's one, and this is an interesting discussion. I talked to you very a little bit about this before. So there's a this may or may not be a thing, but. There's some bad blood between some of the original team members, mostly from people who were brought in at different stages of the project and felt like they deserved more credit than they had been given. And so I won't get into like specific names because that's obviously their own. I, I know like it's like public that they're t saying these things, but there's a lot of fascinating stuff out there about it because once Crash became big, my gist is that I got is that everyone started squabbling over who got credit and for what. There are accusations that people in the development process would like even try to claim credit for things that they didn't do. So there's like a story about a guy who, he was like one of the artists and one, as the story goes, they had developed something over the weekend while this guy had been gone 
a completely new feature. He walked in, saw the feature, drew out a sketch of it, and then took it to the higher ups at Universal and said, look at all the good work I've done. There was discussions on like, like I won't linger too far here, but there's some people who say that they should be considered the creator of, you know, they're the creators of Crash Bandicoot and that they weren't given their full due diligence in, in giving them that credit. Mostly artists who came on in the beginning to help develop like Crash's look, but didn't stay for the whole project. And so, you know, to, to get out all the stuff here, I, be, I think basically Ruben said in an interview, he was like, you know, you may have helped us at one point in the process, but you weren't there for two years then when we made the game. If George Lucas is the creator of Star Wars, do, is also the set designer who made the costumes the creator of Star Wars? You wouldn't call that guy the creator of Star Wars, even though he was there in the beginning and helped design it. And so, like, I know that one of the artists is claiming, at least at one point, he was going to write a book about his experiences, and there's just, there's some weird bad blood there. So. Yeah, that one sentence, I'm going to write a book about it and reveal all of the bad secrets, is either complete bullshit or you don't know. But the... Th- one important thing is how hard it is to get recognition as an artist and how bad it feels to not get it for something that has, in its completeness, while it get, got further developed, has turned into something well-received. And right. especially as an artist that only gets mentioned in the credits with a single line of a name, that must be a crushing feeling. So I understand right. there must be bad blood in a situation like this, right. it's impossible to not have bad luck. I completely understand. And I think that imagine the highly stressful work environment yeah. and what this turned into and what this became and how much money got thrown around. And, you know, once it started making money, there were reports that people were mad that they only got paid X amount of dollars in the beginning. And now the franchise was blowing up. So, it, you know, I, I understand. And I think maybe that's just part of the industry, whether that's good or bad or whatever, but it was definitely a, an interesting time. And I understand why, maybe why some of these people might be mad, regardless of whether or not their claims are unfounded or Absolutely. not. Absolutely. So what's your hot take on all this, Docs? I'm very glad to, to have learned about this, because Crash Bandicoot has been one of the games I've spent huge amounts of time with as a child. And I do feel like this, this shows greatly how teenager boredom can turn into something wonderful and artistic and technologically advanced, which it was. And that should tell people that are like 12 or 13 and they are having weird hobbies that their parents don't understand that they don't have to feel bad about it, but they have to stick to it and keep going. And yeah, maybe we shouldn't discount the ingenuity of young people. Absolutely not. And the power that comes out of puberty boredom. <laughs> This is what I'll take. Take that boredom and turn it into money. (laughs) 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 All right. That's a perfect note to end on. So um, let's, let's talk about sources. I I was, I would try to be really specific about what sources I pulled from this time. Okay. So uh, in February, there was a really great interview with Andy Gavin that I pulled a lot from it's, it was by ARS Technica they do this series called War Stories where they talk about different game development. And this one was called How Crash Bandicoot Hacked the Original PlayStation. It was like a 40-minute interview that was fascinating. Polygon did a an article called Crash Bandicoot in Oral History, a deep look back at PlayStation's blockbuster 1996 platformer as told by those who were there. That was written by Blake Hester uh, in 2017. 
Patrick Klepik wrote an article called Remembering Naughty Dog's First Game that was on Kotaku. Colin Moriarty, Colin Moriarty, not Colin, <laughs> wrote Rising to Greatness, The History of Naughty Dog, the stories behind one of gaming's most renowned studios. That was on IGN in 2013. And I used a website called Ask GR Anything, Where Did Naughty Dog Get Its Name? Andrew Groen on November 30th, 2011. This is on Games Radar. And then I pulled a lot of interesting info off of Andy Gavin's blog. It's just called All Things Andy Gavin. And you can look that up on Google. It's pretty easy to find. Oh, thanks for that sourcing. That's important to know. And thanks for preparing all of this. This was really fun. Of course. And I, I thank you for being here as, um, in, in your capacity as well. Yes. It's very much appreciated, my man. I couldn't do it without you. Do we so. want to say thank you to a few other people? Uh, actually, uh, I'm going to thank Picaro. Picaro suggested that we do Crash Bandicoot for an episode. And I was like, that's a great idea. I'm going to do it. Also, I want to thank Noobish1 or Dalcor, depending on which ever name he's using in the discord at this time for helping us to set up everything for our first episode showing us that codexrex.com was an actual website that existed and that we could buy giving us hosting space uh it was just very much appreciated and i had no idea how to do any of this so it was very useful so thanks i'd also like to thank quad Lather because he provides music for our podcast and also provides us with need tips and tricks to do recording and podcasting which is really great and helpful i agree thank you and good catch there okay well if we missed any of you know that you are great and we appreciate you even though we can't remember who you are <laughs> so all right i think that's it thanks again docs yes thank you stay safe <laughs>